Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Church. Morning. Excited to be here with you. My name, my name is uh, Corey. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Get to be your teaching pastor uh, for today. And so excited uh, to do that. It's, uh, man, just a fun morning to be able to celebrate uh, Kelly, Brittany, the Restored Network, and, and all that. Dude, we, we do strive and aspire to love, foster, adoptive, respite families uh, well, and, and it does cost. And so thank you for your sacrificial. Uh, giving to the year in, uh, even in the midst of a building campaign that you all are, many of you are giving to, uh, in, t- in, my, in light of regular tithes and offerings, uh, you've also looked at this year in challenge and said, uh, yes and amen, we'll give above and beyond uh, to that. One of the most in- incredible, one of the best joys, again, the pastor you has been in, in the midst of all the things that have come up financial, we've never stopped giving to mission. Uh, we've always continued to give sacrificially to local uh, and to global mission, to church planting, uh, to global mission, global missionaries. That's incredible. Uh, that is a heart of generosity. So I just want to say thank you uh, for that. In light of saying thank you, uh, we haven't done this yet. And so uh, somebody go tell kids, we're definitely going over in this service. But uh, I want to take a minute and, and I want to have, if Jeff's in here still, dude, I just want to have Jeff up here. And if David is in here uh, or close to here, if he can run, he can probably hear me out there talking. Uh, I'd like to have Jeff and David up here, and while they're making their way up, uh, I just want to do a couple honorable mentions for this space, all right? There are a lot of people, hundreds of people that have put in work so that we could be here uh, today, and so some of those people include uh, Robert Schubert. That dude was like Cousin Vinny from the Mafia with a baseball bat (laughs) talking to contractors to make sure that we didn't pay a penny, you didn't pay a penny over what you were supposed to. To pay, that dude is fierce, okay? He is a good, I said, I speak softly at a meeting. I said, I speak softly and I carry a big bat, except for the big bat is about 19 inches wider than me and doesn't fit behind my back at all. And his name is Robert. And so he's incredible. So Robert, you thank you so much, brother, for your faithfulness. Uh, Mike Matthews, I saw him in here. That dude has put in countless amount of work for us from counters, countertops, building out the, the framing around the sound booth in here. Designed this, just figured this out in a day so we didn't have to pay $5,000 for a screen. Got him and David came in, figured it out. These men worked until all hours of the night. Ben Evelsizer is one of them as well. Thank you so much. Our staff, uh, Jess, thank you so much for transitioning. As Kelly transitioned out, Jess transitioned in not only to a kids ministry of 200 kids, but also a whole new space uh, designed. So she basically designed a preschool back there, you know, a little small little chaotic riot of kids back there. Thank you for your transition. Aaron Cranston. If you don't know who Aaron Cranston is, she literally does everything. She's, she's incredible. She has been here literally one, two o'clock in the morning cleaning. So the first Sunday you all showed up, you didn't have drywall dust in the corners. Faithful woman of God. Thank you. And to all of your families as well. 
because uh, that sacrifice that you put into a space does not come apart from sacrifice uh, from your families creating the opportunity for you to be able to do that. Lastly, then, honorable mention, I saw him in here earlier. Uh, Chris and Kayla did all of our interior design for virtually free. You guys are absolutely, I mean, they saved us $15,000 probably. Just absolutely unbelievable. So thank you for all your hard work. Um, it looks great. Yeah? It looks super simple, slick. It's everything we asked for. For my brothers, we haven't been on stage together yet. Yeah, and so, (laughs) we're original, we called each other on the way, hey, I love you man, you're my brothers, I know, yeah, you don't like touch. Um, seriously, man, these, I know you, we have a high honor culture. I just love these men. They put in work, so much work over the last couple of months. David knows every millimeter of this building, like the back of his hand. Jeff has put in exponential amount of work, still trying to get it all finished for us. We're still missing speakers and contraptions that control lights. And man, you've made it work. So thank you guys for your faithfulness. We love you. We're thankful for you. All right, see you. All right, I've got about four and a half hours of content to do in 40 minutes, and so um, tell Jess friends I'm sorry, and I'm going to do the best uh, that I can. And so one of my uh, favorite doctrines of the faith is actually called the doctrine uh, of adoption. And so adoption is something that you can do, most certainly, but it's also uh, a theological term. It's a a doctrine, a teaching. It's a, a way by which we can understand Uh, the gospel and what God has done through Jesus Christ for us. And so the doctrine of adoption simply means to be brought into the family of God. I mean, it means a great deal more than this. You could take 16 weeks of a seminary course and unpack two to three hours a night of what this doctrine actually means. But for the time today, it just means to be brought into the family of God. And what I want you to know this morning is, is this. God didn't have to do this. Like, he didn't have to adopt you into his family, but he chose to adopt you into the family. God could have just been your savior. He could have just provided salvation. He could have just provided a home eternal for you. He could have just seen you as righteous, covered you in his righteousness. And in that, like, while that is true, as a loving father, he's adopted you into his family, sealed you in Christ forevermore. Nothing you can do to earn that. Nothing you could ever do to be removed from that. That's what it means for him to be covenantly faithful and covenantly loving is he has brought you into his family, not by anything that he had to do, church. He just wanted to. Uh, Tim Keller's one of my favorite pastor theologians, and uh, I was working through a bit of, uh, I might get to this in a bit, I was working through a few things. My mom passed away about five years ago. And so I read a lot of different things by, by Tim Keller. I call him TK, like we're homies, but we're not. And uh, so TK had a few things to say. And one of his books, I believe it's Prodigal God, he lays out the difference between uh, what it means to see uh, God as a father versus seeing God as a foreman. And he says, if you, have a, if you don't have a proper understanding of adoption, what will happen is you'll come in as a sl- with a slave mentality. And so if you think about it, a slave, slaves, they work in the shadows, The slaves, they're fearful to come into the light, so they remain 
in the dark. They are worried about losing their place at the estate, so they, they try not to come before the head of the estate because he's not a father, he's a foreman. And so they don't get to just work out of the joy of getting to work, but rather they've been put into a position where they're constantly trying to earn. And so they hide in the shadows and they stay away from the foreman and they just do their work hoping to get to maintain their position in the estate. Does that make sense? Okay, then he says opposite of that though is you have being sons. So you have your sonship and he says a son will work the same estate but they will work the same estate, not because they have a foreman that's telling them what to do, but because they have a father who's already given them everything. So it's already their estate. So they get to work then out of the joy of simply working what will soon fully and forever be theirs. There's no need to hide in the shadows for they can come out into the light because he's not a foreman, he's a what? He's a father. You guys tracking with me? For those of you who are in Christ, church, you have been called sons in the Bible. In the book of Ephesians, we don't have time to get into all of it, you are referred to as sons, and that God is your father, he's not your foreman. Now, there's lots of different things that can happen in your story and in your own personal environment that can lead you to see him as a foreman, or maybe even far worse. Maybe you do have a hard time today seeing him as a father, but the apostle Paul, whenever he's addressing the church in Ephesus, he says, you are sons, and this was always the plan that you've been predestined from the beginning of time to be sons in and through Christ Jesus. You've been predestined to be adopted as sons. Now, in Paul's culture, that's crazy for him to say. Right now, to call a dude a son, that's not a big deal. I can say, what's up, son? Talking to Dathan, like, what up, son? He'd be like, what up, honk? You know, like, no big deal. We can have that exchange. If there's a lady in here, I'm like, what up, son? She's like, what? You know? Like, you call me dude already, Corey. Don't call me son. Like, that's not going to work. Paul's culture is even worse. Like women, and think about this, Paul's addressing the church. And there have been men in there and women in there. Women in Paul's culture, they didn't have a voice, let alone a sonship. They were, they were used for procreation and help work the estate. And so whenever Paul in the book of Ephesians looks at them and he says, you have been predestined to be adopted as sons in Christ. That wasn't just to be like cool and countercultural. He wasn't trying to be relative to the time. He was saying, no, you've been given sonship. And it would have shocked them whenever they heard that. Not just the men, the women. Like, what? You have been adopted into Christ Jesus to receive the full and total and complete inheritance that is his. It would have been amazing for them to be able to hear. That is the doctrine of adoption. And it is a doctrine by which, an understanding by which, an aspect of the gospel that we can look at to better understand, I think, where we're going Today, So we'll pin that. Big idea for you today is this. Adoption leads you to Advent. Adoption leads to Advent. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know that Advent means to long or to wait, to look forward to, right? For Israel, they were adventing the Messiah that he would come. For us, we're in a season of Advent as we're waiting on Jesus' second return. I would say today that you are longing. Whether you realize it or not, you're adventing this reality the finalization of your adoption to receive the full and complete and total inheritance that is due to you because of the work of Jesus, not because of anything that you have done. And so we need weeks to cover what I've got to say today. Uh, we have about 40 minutes. I said that 10 minutes ago. So I thought that Psalm 52 uh, would be a good psalm for us to camp in in light of foster adoptive families as well as ending the year uh, in the Psalms. Now, if all we had was Psalm 52, it would be a 
it would not be a very good psalm for us to enter in because it's, a, as you heard read, kind of dreary, kind of rough to land in. But fortunately, we have the whole counsel of God's word. And in that, context is key. And so let me give you a little bit of context. And then we're going to enter into Psalm 52. We're going to start with a guy named Doeg. Doeg's story, point one. There's four points for you. This is going to be the first one. Sorry, I didn't mention them all. Psalm 52 was written, written shortly after a priest named Ahimelech helped King David and while he was on the run with his merry men. He's on the run from Saul. King David is running from Saul. He stops in at this temple to receive some aid from a priest named Ahimelech. While he's in the temple, there's this kind of this figure that's kind of hanging out in the dark. He's kind of over in the shadows, right? He's kind of emo. He's got his lip liner on. His name is Doeg is his name, and he's standing off in the shadows watching the interaction between this priest and between King David, and Himelech serves King David, helps King David in the temple. Doeg is watching this, and Doeg goes back, and he reports this to King Saul. Now, Doeg was one of the uh, chief servants for King Saul, and if we were to read this in 1 Samuel, we know that King Saul has told his servants to kill King David on sight, and so this priest has helped King David And Doeg then does not only kill the priests in the temple there in a place called Nob, he kills all the priests. He doesn't only kill all the priests, church. He literally kills, from our understanding, everyone. Men, women, and children, the text tells us. He commits complete and total genocide on this city. You could say he goes crazy. The only priest that was to survive was a guy named Abiathar. I will not give you a quiz on all these names. I just want to stick to the Bible because it's good. Amen. It's only one priest that made it out. His name's Abiathar. Abiathar was the grandson of the king or the priest who helped King David, Ahimelech. Abiathar has lost everything. First Samuel, now let's read a bit, sets us up a little bit further for Psalm 52. First Samuel says, But one of the sons, Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul, King Saul, had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg, the Edomite, was there, standing in the shadows, that he would surely tell Saul, I have, listen to me, I have occasioned the death, saying I am responsible for the death. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. And so King David is, you know, he's sitting here, Abiathar's running to King David to tell him what's happened, and King David actually does what more men need to do. He takes responsibility for his actions, yeah? Probably a lot less kids in foster care if more men would just take responsibility for their actions, yes? And so he models that well for us. And David says, I've occasioned this death. I am responsible. The reason that this has happened is because of what I did there in that temple. And so Abiathar comes, this young man comes, now orphaned. He doesn't have anyone. He might not have anyone in his whole city. And he comes to this King David. He's the only surviving member of the family, the only surviving member of the priesthood. And King David, feeling responsible for this young man, is lamenting Psalm 52. So Psalm 52 is a lament. It's an outpouring of how King David feels. And at the same time, it's an advent. Because King David writes Psalm 52 as if the justice that he's pleading for has already happened. The justice that he's waiting, longing, desiring has in fact happened. So with all that to be said... Psalm 52, verse 1. You still tracking? That's a lot. told you. Psalm 52, verse 1 says this. Why do you boast of evil? Thinking of Doag. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Talking tongue in cheek. 
The steadfast love of God endures forever, endures all the day. Verse 2, your tongue, your tongue plants, plots, dang, destruction, come on, like a razor, like a sharp razor. I can't read anymore. You worker of deceit, verse 3, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. The reality is here, you talk about what you love, yeah? I don't know about you, but I love tacos. I love tacos. Our staff love tacos. If there's any idol in the church, it's tacos, okay? We had a church player lunch this Tuesday where we ordered the best tacos you can get, arguably, in the Metro East. We fed them tacos when they came to our area. On Wednesday, whenever we showed up, Wednesday morning, what do you think we had to eat? We had, bre- we called them breakfast tacos. That's how much we like it. It was pulled pork cold, still ate it as a breakfast taco. What do you think we had for lunch on Wednesday? We had tacos, right? Let me, I need a shirt that says, like, let's taco about it or something. You know, like, I, we love them as staff. We're always talking about tacos. It's not just that I want to talk about it, though, right? I invited these men in for this church planning because I want them to experience what I love. I don't want them to just hear about it. I want them to experience, to partake in it alongside me. The reality is you speak of what you love. Five times in the first four verses here, King David mentions the words of Doeg. He says, you boast of evil. Your tongue plots destruction. You love lying more than speaking what is right. The reality is Doeg did not love God, but he loved evil. He spoke of evil. It's no wonder that if we were to read the whole story, it mentions him standing over in the shadows. The the narrator there in Samuel is painting this picture of this man who is dark, this man who is evil. And in the New Testament, we would read that Jesus himself would say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? Man, I know y'all know a little bit more than this, okay? Somebody say it proud. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There it is, right? This man loved evil. He spoke evil, evil in his heart. He did evil. One of the chief servants of Saul, instead of being a man after God's own heart, as we've read about David, this man was a man after Saul's own heart. He thought, what can I do to gain my rights through Saul, gain my privilege in Saul? What's interesting about that is that Doeg has the same covenant promises as King David. Same covenant promises as the priest who he would kill. The same godly people that he would have dwelt among as both King David and also this priest. He had the same King David standing in front of him as the priest Ahimelech. He could have helped redeem him. He could have given him the bread of presence. He could have gave him Goliath's sword. But no, he stood off in the shadows. Why? Because he loves evil. He spoke evil. That's what 1 Samuel teaches us. Doak had every opportunity to submit to the unending love of God. And instead, he rejects the love of God. He chose himself. He chose his own way. Let me ask you, as you enter into the holiday season, church, what will you be speaking of? What's on your heart? Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. Will it be just that of presents and Amazon Prime? Will it be how excited you are to go to another gift exchange where all you're doing is passing $25 gift cards around to each other? Or will it be the mercies of Jesus as this is what the season is really about. Psalm 52 continues, verse five. It says, but God will break you down forever. Listen to the the warning of the text. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. It's from his people. But the righteous, verse six, 
The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. And so King David here, pinning the psalm of lament, at the same time, adventing kind of this moment of justice right here. He says, God will break you down forevermore. He's going to snatch and tear you out of the presence. He's going to uproot you from the land of the people. God's justice and his judgment, church, will come. And he's not saying it from a place of fear, keep in mind. Right? He's saying it like, thank you, Father, that there is justice that will come for men who are like this, right? Men like this will be ripped out from the promises of God, from being ever being in the family of God. Thank you, Father, for your justice. Why would he say that? Why would he pin that? Why would he write this song? Well, because he knows that God is not just satisfied with only being a savior, but being a father. And there is a good church, there is a good, right, just father, listen, that will always get the justice his kids deserve. That's why he says this. Right, King David says, there's a day coming, man. There's a day that is worth waiting for. There's a day worth longing in. There's a day worth hoping in. There's a day worth adventing where true and real justice will forever be served forevermore. Where the love of God, listen, will be forever understood in the way that he handles the righteous and the unrighteous. Where the righteous, this is those who are in Christ, who profess faith in Christ, will simply laugh at those who have brought injustice. It's an interesting thing to put in the psalm, isn't it? And yet, this is what he's saying, that we will simply laugh and say, do you not see them over there? They had every opportunity and every measure to profess faith, and yet they chose not to. This is what the psalmist is saying. Doeg sought refuge, sought escape, sought deliverance in his own destruction. Gosh, that's heavy. There's a book in the Bible called the Book of Revelation that says that there's a day of judgment coming for men like this, a day that will be so harsh, church, a day that will be so harsh for men like this that they will pray to the God they don't believe in that mountains will fall on them and crush them and God and his perfect justice will not give them the opportunity to die. Remember, he committed genocide. God is just meeting unrighteousness with righteousness in this moment. That they will seek a death to escape God's judgment and he simply will not let them die. He will keep them in suffering. For the non-Christian, that's a frightening reality perhaps. And I would say, and it should be. And I think that for the skeptic and the non-believer in the room, it would be easy in this moment to go, but I thought you said he was a father. But, but I thought you said he was good. But I thought he was gracious. And I thought he was merciful. And I thought he was, I would say, stay in the story with me. Like this man has committed genocide. Imagine you, you wake up one day and lo and behold, everyone that you know and love is gone. They have been murdered. They've been killed like this is a good father that will always bring justice to his children his justice is just more eternal than we would like to imagine right so for those that have a slave mentality or a legalistic mentality perhaps they think well of course i stay in the shadows it's because they're missing the point they might say where's the grace where's the mercy i would say it's right now in this moment this is the gracious call of a father to receive the invitation to profess faith in the son For the Christian, though, church, for the son, for those who've received the firstborn inheritance, this sort of justice, oh, man, it should only bring us comfort. With all the things happening in the world right now, 
All of the injustice that happens in the world, all the social injustice that happens in the world, everything that's happening among kids and adults in the world right now, in the news and in our cultures, all these things that are happening, we can do minimal to evade it. There is a good and just, righteous, perfect Father who's just waiting. He's adventing his return where he will bring swift, perfect, clean justice on men and women like this. And for those of us in the, in the house then that are sons, it should only bring comfort to know, man, some days I feel helpless as a son. I feel hopeless as a son. And yet there is a God that is just as eager as I am to come back and correct everything. And on that day, we advent. Amen? And so Doag had a slave mentality. He was living in the shadows, working for his position in the house. He would never go to the head of the state. For the head of the state, God was a foreman, not a father. So he falls into a substitute king, a substitute savior named Saul. He had a spirit of slavery that kept him just working for approval, working for acceptance, working to be seen by Saul. That's Doeg's story. Next we have King David's story. Second point for the note taker. King David's story. For those of you online, thanks for tuning in. Look at King David's response here. Psalm 52, 8 through 9. Listen to his response about himself. Verse 8. But I am, listen here, but I am like a green, green olive tree in the house of God, planted in the house of God. They lasted forever, forever, strong in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is King David, right? Think about this story. Enter into this story with me if you have to. This is a man who's writing this psalm saying, I'm responsible. I occasioned the death of those people. And yet we have King David here saying, I am planted in the house of the Lord. I am solid in the house of the Lord. I will thank you forever because you have done this. Like King David, in the midst of suffering, oh my gosh, who do you cry out to in the midst of suffering, church? In the midst of suffering, listen, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of feeling abandoned, in the midst of loss, in the midst of insecurity, King David, as he's pinning the psalm, says, I will not wait in the shadows, but rather there's a name that is worth calling upon, and it is my Father's name, and it is good, and it is eternal, and it is right, and he clings to it, right? Now, he clings to this name. Now, to be clear, okay, uh, y'all are a total mess. Let's just be honest with each other, okay? All jacked up, sinful mess, yeah? Just radically in need of Jesus, amen? amen. Okay, good. for the 15 of you that are honest today, yes. To be clear, you're totally mess. I'm a mess. We all need Jesus. None of our actions this week will lead to genocide, right? We're just not that big of a deal, you know what I mean? We're not, you're not gonna... Lead, now, now, maybe uh, some metaphorical genocide, like perhaps with your words in light of uh, Doag. Maybe you sought to kill somebody's uh, worldview this week. Maybe you destroyed someone's reputation on social media. Uh, maybe you shot down an, an idea from a coworker, perhaps. Maybe your last argument was all, but, or was all uh, embarrassing with your spouse. Maybe metaphorical genocide, sure, but not physical, real genocide. So what would lead King David to be able to find hope faithfulness in the midst of this psalm and what has happened. I think it's because within David's understanding of salvation lies the understanding of a covenantly faithful father that has brought him into the, the faithful covenant promises that he's been given throughout the whole entire story of God. King David, I believe, sees himself as a son 
that it is his sonship that keeps him anchored to the Father, even in the midst of something like this, that he can fully understand. He's wrapping his mind around this reality that he was predestined to be adopted as a son. Now, he doesn't understand who Jesus is, but we have the whole story. Right? We know that King David can be anchored to his father in this moment because there's a better son that's going to come, and there's a better king that's going to come. And in the midst of the psalm, we see David, he's adventing, he's longing, he's looking, saying, I will wait, I will call upon, I will hear, I long for your name. It is enough for me in the midst of suffering. How do you know that, pastor? You're just, doing, you're just kind of inserting that into the text. I would say no, First Samuel 22, if we go back to it and read it, it finishes, it finalizes that thought for us. So if we read the whole thing again, it says, But one of the sons of Amalek, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons in my father's house. We've read that. Here's what we did not read. Stay with me. In the midst of all this, church, he says, Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. What is King David doing? Maybe not a formal adoption here, but what's he doing? He's inviting this orphan into the house. He's just simply modeling what his father has modeled for him his whole life. Abiathar literally means my father is eternal. While he's standing there orphaned. King David is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. He's a foreshadowing of the Christ that we would know to come. He's calling us, even in the psalm in 1 Samuel to Advent, to long as brothers and sisters who were once orphaned apart from Jesus Christ, that we have a Father who is eternal. And so King David, listen, could have just provided. He could have just gave him money, kind of wished him well, and sent him on his way, but that's not what he does, right? He could have just clothed him. That's not what he does. He says, no, come with me. Come into my house. Our father is eternal. Let me model that for you. You've lost everything. Let me give you, let me restore to you everything. Come be a part of my family. You will be safe. Listen, this is the foreshadowing of the Messiah. This is what we advent. This is what we long for, whether we realize it or not. We're all asking the same question today. Am I loved? Am I lovable? Am I desirable? Does anyone actually care? Can anyone see me out here? All the things that an orphan would be asking. And King David simply says, just come in. Hey, we'll be in danger together. He wants to kill you. He wants to kill me. Why don't you come be a part of the family? Invites him in. Provides for him in every way. We've seen Doeg's story. We've seen King David's story. Let me ask you. Have you thought about how your story might impact the way that you see God as a father today? Who do you find yourself identifying here so far? Someone who lives in the shadows, kind of with a slave mentality, or someone who feels free to come into the light as a son? Do you see him as a foreman, or do you see him as a father? Because the reality is, our upbringing, man, it wildly impacts the way that we view God as a father. And I would argue today that God as a father spiritually is not your biological father. I understand what it's like to look through the lens of a biological dad and see God as a father. As a kid who had a dad die of a cocaine overdose when I was seven and had four or five different stepdads before I was in fourth grade. 
I understand the dysfunction that can come from family. And so what I want to do is I want to take a minute here and I want to process through with you two questions that uh, come across, I came across a few years ago to help me understand my own sonship. Uh, if you've been a part of Heights for a while, you know I did a whole parenting conference on this. I did a marriage retreat uh, on this. There's two questions that come to mind in light of your story. This is your story, third point. Two questions I want you to consider is this. Everyone's asking, am I loved and can I have my own way? Am I loved and can I have my own way? If you're a note taker, this is your time to, this is your moment to write these down. Doeg would have answered, am I loved? No. Can I have my own way? Yes. And it led to genocide. King David answers, am I loved? Yes. Can I have my own way? Absolutely not. Even though he was a total mess. And yet still rooted, anchored in Christ. Am I loved and can I have my own way? Out of these two questions derive four households that will affect the way you view God as a father and understanding his love towards you. The first home is this, the passive home. I'm going to be quick. Um, you'll have time in your missional communities this week to further unpack this. If you're not in an MC, I'd encourage you to scan that QR code before you leave today and process through this. First home is this, it's the passive home. It says, yes, you are loved. Yes, you can have your own way. If this was your home, then you were taught that you're the head of the estate. You were taught in answering those questions that way that you were the foreman and that your parents worked for you. And so you were loved like God and you had the power of God because you could do Whatever you wanted to do, it was your estate. They just worked for you. And I would say this, caveat, maybe your parents were well-meaning. Maybe they got told no a whole lot. Maybe they were an abusive household. And so they just meant well for you, but in answering the questions as a yes, you are loved, and yes, you can have your own way, it created an environment that is self-serving, self-seeking, and I would say it creates a self-destructive view of God as a father. And so what happens if you're raised in this environment is that you look at God the Almighty and what happens is you begin to think like, God, if you truly loved me and you were truly for me and I was truly in your family, then you would do what I want you to do. Or you would allow me to do what I want to do. And so whenever God doesn't perform for you, then there's no reverence anymore for God. There's only entitlement that is met with deep-seated insecurity because God should be doing what I want him to do. Well, who's God in that scenario? Well, I am, aren't I? Because I can dictate and I can govern who God is. Patience, if you're raised in this family, patience is not a virtue. It's simply non-existent. There is no waiting upon the Lord. I want you to hear the gospel for those that were raised in this family. You're mad at God for not giving you what you desire. You're mad at God for not giving you what you desire when you should be thankful to God for not giving you what you deserve. One of my favorite Tim Keller quotes is, the worst thing God can do as a father would be to give a selfish person what they ask for, for it would not be a taste of his grace, but rather a taste of his wrath. The worst thing he can do is give you everything that you want. The second home is the militant home. It says, no, you're not loved. No, you cannot have your own way. This is the household that constantly demanded more and more from you without the emotional support to help you to succeed. So they asked more and more and more, but they didn't know how to emotionally repay you. And so this environment will teach you, if you perform, well, then I'll love you. If you're pretty enough, if you achieve enough, if you win enough, then and only then, upon all of your accomplishments, will I give you my affection, except for I don't know how to give you any affection. And so what happens in that is then you only receive another list of expect expectations. And so to break the tension, I jokingly say these are the people in our church that have to-do list for their to-do list, right? They have lists for their list. You know who you are. 
This environment will lead you to see God as a father that is not gracious, that only requires more and more and more and more. And not only does he require more and more and more and more, but he also kind of wants to see you suffer under the weight of his expectations. And so in that, you hear the gospel, you hear grace week in, week out, but you never believe it's actually true for you. Surely there's something else I need to do to receive this grace. Surely I've got to earn something to receive, do something more to receive this grace. And so on the outside, you would say, I excel, I perform, I'm doing well. But on the inside, you say, does anyone even see me? Is anyone aware of all that I have accomplished? This environment breeds little legalists. I want you to hear the gospel as well. Listen here, before you did anything, before you did anything, predestined as a son, right? While you were yet an enemy to God, while you were not performing, in the midst of you not measuring up, Jesus died to give you all of his accreditation, died to give you all of his works, died to give you his righteousness, not your own. And as a son, then, what that means for you is that you can rest and you can breathe. And then you take that truth and then you work from that reality, right? You don't work for your salvation, church. You work from your salvation. You allow the gospel of grace to lead you out then to work. Labor in that truth. Third home is the neglectful home. It says, no, you are not loved. Yes, you can have your own way. It's the wrong answer to both questions. This is my home. This is where I was raised in. My home was kind of like this. Uh, I don't really care if you exist and you're just kind of in the way, right? Uh, You've been kind of inconveniently placed in our lives. Now could you go keep yourself busy for a season by yourself? That's the home that I was raised in. So maybe you're like me and you're raised by drug addicts. Uh, Maybe you're raised by alcoholics. Uh, Opposite of my family, maybe you're raised by workaholics. Our family learned how to work the system. They never learned how to work a job. Ultimately, this home leads you to feel like you don't really matter, that no one cares. You feel as if you don't have a voice or you don't have any opinion at all. And so instead of stating an opinion and having a voice, it's better just to shut up and sit down because no one's going to pay attention to you. Anyway, this, off, this environment then often breeds passivity and laziness. Uh, you thought you just really liked Netflix. It turned out you're questioning your whole childhood now, right? Gosh, I just, just wanted to watch Wednesday. turned out. Perhaps you find yourself, though, regularly passive and lazy. It breeds an environment that is, makes it difficult to commit to jobs, relationships, hobbies. Very quickly, you can be dismissive of people who are in your life. This environment then also breeds, I know personally, a ton of self-doubt, inadequacy, easily dismissal of things when they're difficult, conforming you to be a rebel uh, without a cause. You act out in front of God, hoping that God will see you, hoping that God will actually discipline you because you just want to know your worth being disciplined. In that, then I want to invite you to hear the gospel as I preach it to myself. Jesus sees you. From eternity past before time ever had a measure, he looked across time and space and he saw you. And he saw that you were worthy. And he looked and said, you are my son. And I'm going to kill my son to show you how desperate I am. All the rebellion that you've caused, I'm going to take out all my wrath and anger that you deserve and I'm going to place it on my son. Because you're worth it. 
Last home then, the balanced home is the home you actually think you don't want to live in, but you hope to raise your kids in. Balanced home. Yes, you are loved. No, you cannot have your own way. This is a home where parents fought in front of you. You want to quickly identify. Was that us? They fought healthy, let me say, in front of you. They loved each other. They joked about sex, you know, like a normal house like that. They told you no to keep you safe. Um, They showed that they love you by spending time with you. Imagine that. Uh, this is an environment whenever uh, where dis- discipline mattered. They were good authoritarians, I think I can say. They were consistent. There were consistent consequences for your actions in your rebellion. Am I loved? Yes. So how do I know? Because you can't do whatever you want. I love you enough to tell you no. That's what we say in the Johnson house. No. Why? Because I love you. Doesn't feel like love. And you're yelling. I know. You know. But I do. I promise. If you're raised in this home, you need to call your parents and tell them thank you. Like you're excused right now. <laughs> Be like, dang, Mom, I thought I needed Jesus, but these folks, they really need him. This is a home where the parents taught you the gospel. They taught you that works and grace, grace and works can go together. They taught you about a father that loves you because of who Jesus is, not because of who you are. A father who can love you because of Jesus's performance, not because of your performance, but oh, his performance can propel you to do better and to do more. And they taught you of a a father that does not expect you to measure up, but rather he measured up in your place as your substitute and then just gave you all of the reward for all of his excellence. He bestowed that upon you. They said, now, because those things are true, because those things are true, go and work. Oh, go work your fingers to the bone for the Lord. And whenever you find yourself tired and leery and heavy laden, as Pastor Jeff said, just run home to the Father again. And he will give you grace upon grace. Church, it's important that you understand your environment determines the way you view the Father. So this week, we'll give you more time to set in that. Last point. I know I dropped that on you so you can process through it. Last point then is our story. Our story, our story as a church is not one of works and works alone, but of grace and grace alone, church, where we've been adopted into the family of God by nothing we could ever do. And that wasn't something that God had to do. It's something that he desired to do. He wasn't satisfied with just being a savior, and so he took another step and wanted to be a father. And that is who we have. And so I want you to stand with me as I tell you this final story. We'll take communion. The team will come up. Uh, today is December 11th. Uh, all of our kids and my wife have birthdays this month. Uh, so we started a GoFundMe, you know. <laughs> we're just gonna, we don't pass the plate, but we're going to this week, you know. Just one more time, you know what I mean? Uh, my wife is December 3rd. Uh, Josiah uh, was yesterday. Kason is today. Emma is December 19th. And December 7th is the day that we celebrated, that we brought, that we adopted Kaysen, uh, kind of our gotcha day in that way. So Kaysen, our youngest, uh, was born December 11th today. We brought him home on December 19th, which is Emma's birthday. She asked for a baby. She got way more than she could have ever wanted. Uh, we fostered Kaysen for two years, and then on December 7th, 2020, we adopted Kaysen uh, into our family. Whenever reunification, it's called reunification, that's a goal for fostering, reunification to reunite kids to their families. When reunification was no longer an option, adoption became an option for us. And in that moment, whenever adoption became the option for us, to foster simply was not enough. Right? We could have just brought him into our home. Uh, we could have provided for him. We could have given him food. We could have fostered him. And I would say that that would be sufficient. That is good and right but it wouldn't have been enough with this other option on the table. 
So we got the opportunity to adopt, and we did. Listen, that's our story, church. That's your story as a Christian. Those who have professed faith in this room, God could have just saved you. He could have just brought you into the family. He could have just put clothes on you. He could have just gave you three meals and some snacks throughout the day. He could have kept you safe in that way. And I would say that would be sufficient. Listen, but it would not be enough. Not for him. Not with the option on the table to be able to adopt. He could have just saved and instead he chose to adopt. Just saving us though would have been enough. Like think about all the pleasures that come just from being in Christ. And yet he says, no, I want them to receive the firstborn inheritance of the son. Those who are called to be servants, I'm gonna make them sons. And the way I'm gonna make them sons is by making the son become a servant for them. So he sends Jesus to the cross. He walked in perfection for the perfect servant son walks in perfection for you, for me. And then he goes to the cross and dies the most brutal, humiliating, horrific, sacrificial death in your place as your substitute. That's what we deserved as servants. And instead of leading us, giving us over to death, man, he resurrects to new life and he sends us the Holy Spirit. Think about that. That's crazy. Like I can love Kaysen. I can give him everything in the world. You all love him well. You can give him everything in the world. He will never have your DNA. He'll never have my DNA. And yet the Father, through the Son, sends us his DNA. Boom, new life. We give him new life. Holy Spirit comes in us, takes up residence, regeneration. And then he says, as if that were not enough, I'm going to give you a fully glorified body. We're going to completely reverse the curse of everything that you've done. Dude, that's the doctrine of adoption. And so you can stand in here and you can have the mentality of a slave that says, no, 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 you're a foreman. You just want me to work a certain way. You want me to do enough and measure up and you're hiding in the shadows. Man, or you today can pray that Jesus would come into your life and make you a son. Or you stand in the light and you say, thank you, Jesus. I know I'm not worthy. I know I'm a mess. I know I'm sinful. And yet you see me as a son. Like that's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to experience adoption as sons. Listen, he's a father, but he's not your biological father. He is good, he is perfect, he is right, he's sufficient, he's holy, he's glorious, he's magnificent, and he's coming. And he is who we advent, amen? As we enter into a time of communion, let me read this over you. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So for those of you that are in Christ, this is a meal that is for you. The table has been set. I would encourage you before you open those wrappers and take that communion. I would encourage you to take a moment and ask, God, which home did I fit into? Which home was I raised in? And then I would ask him to start to redeem that right now. And when you take communion, celebrate the finished work of Christ in your place, within your story, to do the work that's necessary so you can see him as a good father, all right? The table is set for those of you that are saints.